folks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to KUCI. This is Claudia Shambaugh, your host on Ask a Leader, welcoming you to the August 20, 2013 edition of the show. Today we have on Casey Kaplow, co-founder and creative director of Good, a global community of by and for pragmatic idealists toward working on individual and collective progress. Then we'll hear from Dr. Scott Haldeman, who's going to talk about everybody's got the pain in the neck and maybe even the lower back. He's on it all over the globe, and he'll talk about it in the second half. Don't go away. I'm going to be right back. Wasn't that a lovely intro of the Scarborough Fair with the Canadian Brass Ensemble? It's the, it's a kind of village communal tone to set with the next, uh, this part of the show today. I don't know if you've been hearing it, folks, but there is a sizzling sound of the most scintillating and righteous activism shared in a come-together throughout L.A., a bit of which I got to see a chance yesterday in action. In the middle of all of this is my first guest today, Casey Kaplow, co-founder and creative director of Good, a global community of, by, and for pragmatic idealists working towards individual and Collective Progress New Enterprise, uh, uh, which is this week. It's now going on in downtown L.A. In their words, quote, throwing a party in honor of the Good Exchange, a week-long pop-up incarnation of Good's Global Citizenship Project. This undertaking includes five global fellows, and we'll talk about them in a bit in the show, 20 local organizations, and the collective effort towards improving neighborhoods. The world round, a veritable homeowners association without borders, I'm calling this, and even fewer conventions. Starting yesterday, it's staged in downtown downtown L.A., where participants are invited to add to their interactive neighborhoods installations. The manifesto is on, folks. Casey Kepler, my guest today, was born in D.C. He grew up in Virginia, attended college in Rhode Island. Casey comes to us today from where else but Los Angeles. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Casey. Thank you. Well, let's, Casey, take it up from the top. Where, when, and how did this hyper-creative enterprise take off? Yeah, so we began doing a bunch of work uh, around this idea of global citizenship earlier this year. And, and Good has always been a, an organization and media for people who give a damn, we say, and for this, this global sensibility of how we make the world a better place. And so for a long time, we've looked outward, we've, we've covered the, the world as we see it here and connected with a lot of people in different places doing amazing projects, making their communities better, making the world better. And earlier this year, we started an effort we were calling the Global Citizen Project to more deliberately get into the global connections, not just the stories, but but finding the people and connecting this community around the world. And as we did that, we really realized that there was going to be a need to bring people together. And we had invented this sort of holiday and social experiment earlier in the year called Neighbor Day, which was really a celebration of, of neighbors and neighborhoods and the real community level the real hyper-local community building, community level. Excuse me, Casey, when I missed that Neighbor Day, when did that happen and where? That was uh, the last Saturday of April. So I believe this year it was April 26th or 27th, but we've pegged it for the last Saturday of April onwards. And 
it really it happened everywhere. We we put out the word on our website, and people started to sign up from all over. And there were you know thousands of people signed up, and hundreds of people hosted little neighbor day gatherings and celebrations all over the world, in fact. Well, you know, that's also the time when the Los Angeles Times Book Festival is happening, so I hope that in subsequent uh, Neighbor Day celebrations, you've got a booth that's wired to the rest of the world. For sure. And this year was just the beginning, so we really, we learned a lot, and we're excited to to get on it again for next year. And I want to say about the concept here, it's, it's a kind of a network, a social network, the whole good and good exchange. And I had over a year ago on this program, anthropologist Mimi Ito, um, who's uh, on loan from UCLA over at UCI for a, a year or two. And she, she'd she written a book, it's called Hanging Out, Messing Around and Geeking Out. And I want to say the, the most highly applied dimension of her research, geeking out, is exactly where I see good operating. You're really getting together around some very... Uh, well-developed, very applied sorts of uh, activism and uh, well-developed projects around the world, and it, it it restores my faith in you know what how much productivity is coming out of this kind of a social network uh, domain, as it were. So I, this is just terrific. Well, let's let's thank you. Let's oh absolutely. Well, let's gathered here uh, in the L.A. area, and I, I'm going to connect some dots back to Orange County too in a bit, folks. But let's talk about those good fellows. The um, the Global Neighborhood Challenge winners who are the stars of the show here in L.A., um, the central part of the Global Exchange. The five winners are here and at the long, the week-long pop-up fellowship at um, Good Headquarters. Uh, they include Kurt Shaw, working out of Brazil, Regina Aguiare, I think I'm from Ghana, Maria Morfin, uh, outside of Mexico City, and Coralie Wynn, out side, well, around uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, and Bruce Good in the Cape Town, South Africa area. So let's talk about how they were qualified, and uh, will this be an annual um, challenge for um, other projects such a, so illustrious as theirs? Yes, we, we very much hope so. This is the first time out, and it's been, you know, we're only one day in, and it's going all this week, but so far it's been an incredibly exciting experience, and I think really special things happen when you start to bring people together like this. I think it's a group of five people we chose because we felt they really embodied this creative engagement that good is really all about, and they're really in this neighborhood challenge was about people working on neighborhood level, community level change and innovation, and they all met that in very different ways, whether it's through working with kids, through technology, through arts, through media, through public spaces. And so in some ways they're all quite different and coming at this community improvement perspective quite differently, but there really are common threads that they share. And even in the first day, the the conversation and connections they were making was quite exciting to see. The common threads were not lost on the suburban homemaker, not quite, uh, that I am in seeing where we could run with some of these ideas. They were they they were very simple, and they became, I mean, they were amazing in what resourcefulness, where it gets you. Well, we can talk about each one of them if you'd like to do that now. We can start with with Kurt Shaw in uh, Recife, uh, Brazil, which is, he's, as he explained, is his, it had even higher homicidal rates than we understand are in Rio de Janeiro. And he, he put together an amazing project uh, over the last decade now of work. Mm-hmm. So he started this project called Favela News, and that's the one, he, he does a number of things, but that's the one that he's brought here to focus on. Yes. And this is really about uh, creating different ways to engage and empower kids. And, and they have this, this problem in favelas where crime rates are terrible, the role models that exist for kids coming up and the paths for them to follow and aspire to are really poor in so many ways. And and they're also the stories that they hear about themselves or see about themselves are really just negative. The media only comes in to tell a negative story. And so he started this program called Favela News where he works with kids to produce media and news programming about their own lives and about the positive things in their lives. And he's been doing this for years now, and he gets out there with with young kids and teaches them how to 
use a camera and cut together a news segment and then does screenings in public places that the community comes out and sees. And it's it's been really powerful. The It's actually helped. He, he can point to how crime rate and, and uh, you know, violence has reduced in these areas and precipitously it's really positive positive channels have cr- have been created and i liked how he talked about how the 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 prestige has been redefined instead of what your brand and your gang affiliation is it's now it's the prestige of being a journalist having a profile in in the media exactly exactly there there's a new thing that the kids can look at and aspire to be that that's really cool and and fun and that you know gives them something to do that is really positive for the community instead of negative as well he talked about and actually there was a sort of a red thread too about sort of uh alcohol uh in the into the mix of of what people do as they're sort of escaping the hard hard realities and that kind of thing and he was talking about the families get together on a uh it's a monthly basis and they where they're presenting a some kind of a festivity, a fiesta of sorts, although that's not a Portuguese word, and that their uh, the uh, alcohol consumption is lowered. The the family are watching what their otherwise at risk children are involved in in some very productive enterprises, and it's sort of it's bringing the whole the aggravation level down, alcohol consumption down, and it's uh, and uh, gives all the the family entities a source of pride. Mm-hmm. And he exactly. and, and he talked about how. Uh, getting that group together, it gave, it brought barriers down that used to exist where there was an identity with your own sub-favela sort of neighborhood entity and that people were getting back together, hadn't seen each other for years because of barriers that the gang affiliations caused. So he was really reaching through in such a phenomenal way. I really laud him. I don't know if you want to add to any more of that. No, I think that last point's a really good one. I think in some of these areas, you see these divisions that are built up across gang-held parts of favelas, and people can't cross those lines. And when you introduce new programs such as this that don't have any deeper affiliation or historical baggage in that way, it, it opens up ways for people to to cross them, and it is really powerful in that respect as well. Then we have uh, also uh, Maria uh, Morphine from uh, outside of New Mexico, um, and she also is bringing uh, proud parents together to see what uh, the children have. Uh, there are like their preteens and teenagers who are uh, being listened to for once. I mean that that just that was the the premise for her Maria's activism. Do you want to talk about her project? Absolutely. So Maria is based outside of Mexico City, and she she lives in an area that has actually seen a, a lot of growth and development because it's a beautiful area and and becoming a a very um, tourist-driven area. And she's been there for years and started to work with these kids, realizing that there's also a lot of poverty in in this place. And so there's a lot of, you know, underserved children. And she started to work with them and realized that they didn't have a voice and they had a lot of ideas and a lot of interest and, and desire to to learn and to be engaged with their communities. But the culture in Mexico and in that region doesn't particularly listen to kids and probably in so many places across the world. And she really just started by sitting down and listening with them and playing games. And it's developed over the years into this program where she helps children define their own projects and to decide, design their own learning curriculum and design their own programs to help their communities and it's sort of grown and, and turned into all kinds of stuff where they're developing games and she has several books and runs workshops and it's really all about giving a voice to these kids to express their problems but also their the solutions that they want to see in their lives and in their community and while i was listening to maria i kept thinking wow we've got a great park in orange county and for all of the sort of, uh, you know, malaise that's kicked in some of the suburban uh, pre- preteen and teenagers that we can do some listening, set up something in, at the Great Park, to uh, a forum to give them greater ownership in this suburban 
sort of dull existence, or we'll t- we'll take up some other aspects of it uh, next week uh, with some high school students and the principal, but that we could actually, as you said, with this global exchange, we can take up uh, at, at this template that Maria has in a much, much more modest economic setting, and we can we can make it much much better, much richer for our own right here in Orange County. I really laud uh, her her enlightened vigor in how uh, she was able to make something really marvelous happen, and, and, and it's ongoing with, with all of these case studies. Uh, then there is uh, Regina, and please help me, Casey, with how to pronounce her last name. Yeah, it's Regina Ajare. Ajare from Ghana, and she, as it's as was discussed a little bit yesterday in the group, she's Probably not from a typical family. She got a good break with a good exchange program experience uh, in Norway. That's where they went, her American Field Service Exchange. And then she she moved away from banking where, uh, with her career after her university training, and she realized that there was something to be done with some connectivity and, again, young people and training them to to look beyond a kind of an aid-dependent psyche and how they could be developing their own kinds of technological means to uh, develop their own communities uh, in a more sustainable way. You want to talk about her project? Sure. So Regina is, is pretty amazing. She's, she's quite young, and she became disenchanted with the education that she received uh, growing up in Ghana, especially when she had been a, a really good student there and then went to Norway for this exchange program, as you mentioned, and and found she was really struggling and connected it back to this idea that she had learned, you know, just through rote memorization and that that was a Mm -hmm. lot of the focus there, but it hadn't empowered her to do real thinking and analysis skills. And so as she became really also fascinated with technology and and, um, things of that nature, as she went back to Ghana, after sort of being in the IT world, realized that there was something to do in working with kids. And so she left that job and started this social enterprise where she's really focused on teaching um, young kids these STEM skills, the science, technology, engineering, and math skills. Um, And so she goes into, she actually works in a rural village, um, which I believe is where she grew up and where her father grew up. And you know, is developing programs where she just works with kids to to get them engaged and involved in all of these technology projects, you know, coding, creating games, and, then, and just generally learning science and, and technology skills. And, you know, one of the things that she's really worked to introduce is a lot of local context because a yes. lot of the, uh, you know, I guess the – the way things are taught or the stories that, that drive education. She mentioned yesterday, you know, you get these Disney stories of, you know, Snow White and things like that. And that's so far out of context for what these kids are seeing and will see. And so she does a lot of work to connect it back to local stories and local frameworks that people will really understand. And it opens up so much more easy entrance for these kids into the learning process. Without further ado, I want to just make sure everybody who's just joined us knows that I'm talking on Ask a Leader with Casey Kaplow, co-founder and creative director of GOOD, a global community of people and organizations working toward individual and collective progress, talking about the, what's going on in LA this whole week, the neighborhood pop-up, uh, pop art uh, op party phenomenon uh, underway, and we're talking about the good fellows who won the competition in the the, the, the good project uh, launched uh, this last year, and we're talking specifically about uh, the one that would be uh, uh, Regina uh, Aguiar in uh, Ghana, and she also picked up on that the girls were holding back in that initial group that she, uh, workshop she was convening, and she took it upon herself to give those girls a separate kind of tutelage, which mattered a great deal in in which they could really flower. Otherwise, they might have been a completely lost sector of that demographic. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, she mentioned when she first started teaching how, you know, the boys would sort of rush to the front and monopolize the laptops or other 
gadgets that they were playing with, and she realized she needed to create some separate opportunities and has really done a lot of focus on, on girls in particular. And I think she, she sort of sees how her experience you know, really benefited from some of that encouragement that she got to be more assertive and wanting to sort of help, help give that to a bunch of other young girls as well. Excellent. And I'm um, saying to uh, Bruce Good, uh, who's based in Cape Town and talking about um, to some of the work he's done. I'd like to say that it's been almost 19, it's been about 19 years since our Amy Beale from this area, who was doing a lot of democracy projects, uh, wrapping up her Fulbright in the Cape Town area, uh, and she was killed uh, in, I'm not sure if it was Gugaletu or um, there's another township nearby, the name just about fails me right now, but uh, Bruce Good was dealing with probably something that might have been an antidote that might have been uh, a way of uh, picking up the disabused youth that uh, were uh, what, what, that wrecked the havoc and uh, that was killed, that killed actually Amy Beale. Uh, Bruce Good had started a project with uh, dealing with all the sort of entities, sub-entities, the neighborhoods around that really didn't have any kind of a label, didn't have a name. And that's what he took up then is engaging those constituents with a way of of giving themselves a, an actual place, a name for where they've been living all this time. Can you talk about that, Casey? Sure. So Bruce, who's from Cape Town and had spent time working in London and I believe in university in at NYU in New York, uh, he got back to Cape Town years a couple of years ago and realized this that he had been exposed to you know amazing sense of place in London and in New York and other places he had traveled and that that was lacking for him as he sort of saw Cape Town again with new eyes and started to understand that in many ways that was intentional and systematically intentional by the you know old apartheid government that had been there in you know removing senses of identity and structuring the city such that it would keep people down and prevent people from organizing and and rising up and he created this really simple idea at first called name your hood which was you know how to you know, do a democratic, almost American Idol style mm-hmm. naming process for for areas of the city that didn't have names uh, and didn't have effective identities and, and understood that there's so much empowerment that comes with having a sense of identity. And when that's denied you, other things fail. Right. Um, even, ro- even street names and, and things like that, which actually can become functionally problematic, whether it's for mail delivery or for calling the police or an ambulance and not having good markers. And so what started as this initial, you know, public contest, American Idol inspired naming process to get the community to develop ground up uh, names and identity for these different neighborhoods, you know, has turned into a growing set of projects that, that both he's working on, but that have been inspired by this process that are adding, you know, bringing, bringing more of this sense of empowerment to these, these areas and townships and uh, the outer areas of Cape Town in particular. So the method or the, the, the link here, the seeing with new eyes and listening is just a, just the most powerful first place to begin with changing a neighborhood to change the world here. It's just, it is phenomenal. And then we have Corali Wynn, who is, uh, she's a Kiwi, she's Australian, but now a Kiwi, uh, based in Christchurch and precipitously got involved when she she was actually a, a, a laid-off worker and she was w- looking around when after the first of the two earthquakes that happened within a year of each other uh, leveled so many structures in not-so-beautiful downtown and in-decline Christchurch and she was is an amazing case study and just such a short turnaround then probably the shortest turnaround of all of these groups uh, uh, all of these uh, good fellows in reclaiming that what was private space into some amazing public uses. Do you want to talk about that, Casey? Sure, yeah. So Corley, who who actually has this theater background, you know, and, and was in Christchurch when there was this, this series over a couple of years of earthquakes, and the last one leveled so much of the city. And, and I don't know, 
you've seen the pictures. I mean, I remember having heard about this, but right. until seeing her presentation, it was it was shocking that the degree of damage that it took. And some people have sort of equated it to Dresden after World War II. I mean, just Fair buildings fell down, and buildings that haven't fallen down had to be torn down. And there was, for two and a half years, a fence around the center of the city because you couldn't even go there. And in this setting... You know, she and and a couple friends who were also in theater and in architecture, you know, wanted to help their city. And there was all of this vacant land and a need for for it to be reactivated. And so, sort of combining this theater perspective and this architecture perspective, they started to do a series of, of you could call them interventions of, you know, rapid place-making experiments where I believe they started by setting up a little public library, a a a give-a-book, take-a-book spot on a vacant piece of land. And it's evolved over time, and there have been more and more projects from pop-up movie screenings to dance parties to uh, this pallet pavilion that they built with repurposed shipping pallets, uh, that was a phenomenal scale. And, and I believe it's still up and, and took a long time and a lot of money to, to get going. But, but they're really focused on how to re-energize and reactivate these spaces and it's, not wait for formal development that costs you know millions of dollars and can take a long time to get going because there's just so much space that needs needs that so much faster than a typical development process. Well, just for an, a, a visual right. example that um, t- for listeners, since this is, after all, a radio medium, that the the book exchange, give a book, take a book, there is a, a sort of like a freezer compartment. It's in the middle of this vacant lot, and that just completely redefines unused uh, open space that, uh, I mean, not it's not a blight. It's a place where you could actually bring a book and take a book out of this this kind of a freezer shelter it's and uh, you know it's keeps the books year round in any kind of a weather situation it, it's phenomenal and all these other places where the movies are staged the performances are are uh, staged as well that all of the setting is is appointed in all these found materials so it's really it's about putting what's around together so it's a uh, it's it's just phenomenal what she's been able to do and i think that that rounds out all the fellows that were the winners of the uh the let's see here the 190 applications from 42 countries uh, all around the world and i just want to give you a chance before we wrap up shortly and i'm a little over time right now casey is there going to be a continuation of this uh kind of competition for the subsequent years yeah we certainly hope so i think we're going to look at a fix exactly this same theme but i think this kind of endeavor where we find five leaders from around the world to bring together for, you know, a week-long intensive uh, is, is something we're really excited about and I think can do a lot of a lot of good stuff for both them and their own projects and how those scale, but also the community that, that they and we reach through good on a daily basis. So it, I, I really hope that we can continue this. I think there's a tremendous amount of traction. It's already, it's influenced me, and I know uh, of all the people that are going to be coming together this week throughout, I want to make sure everybody knows that they can go to the website at good.is, or www at um, good.is. There is a Good Magazine, a quarterly print publication for people who want to live well while doing good. And uh, it brings some some very innovative material, very playful voices, as they say, and insights on social enterprise. So I, uh, I know, Casey, you've got lots more to tell us. I thought by just focusing in on the fellows this particular year. Now, I did include everybody. I think we needed uh, all. And so... um, that uh, to give everybody an idea of you know how fertile this whole ground is that good is mining. So uh, Casey, I want to thank you for being on the show here today on Ask a Leader. Thank you so much. And uh, have a great week. I hope I might be able to sort of make one more foray up there while it's going on. Well, that for those that are more up open to the public, I know that's near the end when you've got some uh, closing receptions. But anyway, thank you all the best. Thank you. You too. So what we're going to do is we're this was that was Casey Caplow. He's the co-founder and creator, uh, creative director of Good uh, 
for being on this morning, and we're going to stay tuned. Uh, we'll have right back on the show for the second half, Dr. Scott Haldeman, UCI physician and super international medical activist on neck pain and lower back pain. So don't go away. We're going to be right around the corner with our next program. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. That was Marching Home, the title tune on for the Balsam Range. Uh, I got some guys from the uh, near the Appalachian uh, region there. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Dr. Scott Haldeman, and I hope we can ring out so much with so little time today. As uh, some anthropologists will put it, mankind stood up too soon. The consequences of that, I cover the rest of this half hour, with this hour with Dr. Haldeman, with his everywhere involvement taking up this universal health problem of neck and lower back pain. He first received his doctorate of chiropractics at Palmer College, his bachelor and master's in science at University of Pretoria, that's in South Africa, and his MD and PhD in neurophysiology at the University of British Columbia. A top uh, atop a prodigious and daunting heap of accomplishments. They go on for many, 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 many pages. Dr. Haldeman is currently affiliated with the faculties of, keep track all, UCLA, UCI, and USC, and Shanghai University. He's past president of the North American Spine Society, American Back Society, the American Academy of Manipulative Therapy, and the Orange County Neurological Society. He served on the Executive Council of the International Society for the Study of Lumbar Spine. He was appointed international ambassador the decade of the bone and joint that was 2000 to 2010. He's founder and, the cur- and currently serves as the president of World Spine Care, a nonprofit organization endorsed by the Decade of the Bone and Joint um, there, an initiative of the World Health Organization. Dr. Haldeman comes to us today from Orange County, where he maintains an active, including all that other, an active clinical practice. Welcome to the show, Dr. Haldeman. Thank you very much, Claudia. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, we're glad that you can winnow in valuable time to be with us today. Well, the world... Spine care has been your charge. It's a huge undertaking on an enormous scale. Tell us, to the extent that you can, such a short time, to which this contributes to confounding overall health. Well, it's, it's throughout my career, it's been very important to deal with back and neck complaints, as you heard from the, uh, this has been my main area of interest. But uh, recently there's been a study published in The Lancet giving the global burden of disease for all disorders associated with uh, that, that the world has. And this is called the global burden of disease. And it was an international group sponsored by the World Health Organization, funded by the Gates Foundation. Right. And they listed virtually every disease possible. And what was particularly remarkable about this is that low back pain was defined in the entire world as the leading cause of disability worldwide. It contributes over 10% of all disability in the world. And if you combine back and neck pain, you actually are, and you look at all the burden of disease, in other words, both lives lost and and, uh, And disability, years Mm -hmm. lost, uh, you find that it is one of the major causes of of uh, and burdens of disease on the community it's greater than alzheimer's disease greater than hiv aids greater than malaria greater than stroke greater than breast and lung cancer combined and yet it seems to be basically ignored in the world uh, there are virtually no foundations there are no um, fundraising organizations to do research into this field and yet we're virtually, virtually all of us are impacted by it. It's a huge problem. Exactly. It's, there's no, uh, well, you're going to make it even sexier and more visible with all the world spine uh, agendas and with your the support that you're getting from the likes of Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Elon Musk, who are, they're both interested in some, in the social justice and in solving uh, persistent uh, and pervasive problems around the world. So that they'll, they'll be the ones that are going to keep bringing more visibility to all of this. So the 
the as you said, the burden of disease is what sort of sets off a number of other health complications and disabilities that can increasingly lead to a, a, a shorter life term. It, uh, well, in, in some parts of the world, in many of the parts of the world the World Spine Care Group is going into, uh, people are dependent upon their backs to survive. They have to till the fields. They have to uh, carry heavy loads. They have to use their their spines continuously. And if they end up with uh, incapacitating spinal problem, they can no longer feed themselves. They can no longer feed their families. And since most of these countries have no significant social net, they end up dying. So it has become ex- extraordinarily important in that sense. There are also other issues that have come up. Uh, for example, some recent research has shown that chronic pain, and particularly uh, chronic uh, spinal pain, uh, has the capacity to cause severe depression, uh, severe di- disability, and even uh, memory and cognitive changes. Correct. So, so we're, we're dealing with an issue which is probably impacting every one of us. Right. I mean, with one, it be, you are rendered immobile if you're suffering from such acute pain from these uh, uh, sustained injuries, and then therefore you, you're not able to be, not, it's not just a vocational, but it's a sort of mental and physical well-being that is, com- is completely undermined. So I, it's no, uh, for me, it is, it's, uh, it's no problem to understand how that depression and uh, the other uh, serious other um, effects uh, occur from all of this. Well, for those of you who've just joined me, you're listening to Ask a Leader here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming to all where everybody's carrying and lobbing things on their back. So, uh, up, up over their heads on uh, the web, KUCI.org. My guest is Dr. Scott Haldeman, uh, the um, World Spine Center chairman, and he's talking to us today about the, all the complications and how he's addressing a neck and lower back pain. Well, on the heels of the World Health Organization's Bone and Joint uh, Decade Initiative, where, as I said, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Elon Musk gave their, their heft to their leadership, uh, where are we now over the next decade tackling this disorder? Well, that's a big problem. Yes. Uh, we're, we're expending very few resources on the management of spinal disorders. If you, if you go out and you look on, on, the, on the net and try and find uh, a, a major national organization which has a great deal of funds, other than the professional societies, like the North American Spine Society and so on, are teaching other physicians. You try and find an organization that is widespread, like the American Cancer Foundation, the American Heart Foundation, uh, Alzheimer's Foundation. I mean, virtually every other disease state has large, publicly funded, privately funded by individuals who suffer these diseases. And what's fascinating to me is to find that although spinal problems, and particularly back and neck pain, have a much greater impact on society and considerably more people suffer from it, how rarely people are willing to consider supporting organizations that are trying to resolve this issue. And this has been one of the major problems. People start feeling that this, since I got it and every one of my friends and family have it, maybe we don't, it's just part of life and we don't need to look into means of resolving the issue. And in the Western world uh, and in the United States, where we have tremendous social nets, it's not a, it doesn't seem to have the same level of impact. It almost has a negative yes. feeling. If, if you have back pain, well, there's really something wrong with you. You're not doing something right. Whereas, in, as I said, in much of the rest of the world, you actually are likely to, to die. Right, right. So there's, there's a, you're working on some vital projects in uh, Shoshong, Botswana is like the what your sort of first sort of case study of your uh, your toolkit and then Rath, I'm going to slaughter the name but Rathambori, India. So these are sort of rural settings that you're trying to engage this public health care initiative uh, there with first this getting a sustainable kind of a program running and then developing as I said this universal uh, spine care toolkit where you're looking at how primary care's model specifically addresses this and education. So um, let's, 
um, I, I don't know if there's one of those aspects of those the, the sustainable capacity, the, the toolkit and the education program that you want to take up in, in a little bit of time that we have here to yeah, give us I, hope that we can, you know, help, help that all these people can be helped out, not to mention what, you know, could be done here. Yeah, I think the, the most important issue, which actually stimulated the whole process, was an observation that uh, in, a, in a small village in India, uh, the, 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 um, a survey was done is what is the single most important component, of, uh, health component you need fixed? And they said, well, uh, we have infant mortality. All our kids are dying. And so they, brought, they went to the United Nations. They got a model of care, and they were able to reduce the infant mortality. They said, what was the second most important? It was malaria. So they went and, got, and looked for a model of care, and they were able to institute it. They said, what is the third most important? They said, back pain. Okay. And they went around the world, and there is no model of care today which a organization, a community, or something can institute in order to reduce the burden of this disease. And that was the stimulus for World Spine Care. So we're establishing this, uh, our model clinics in, in Botswana and in India and perhaps now in Tanzania and Dominican Republic in order to demonstrate or try and demonstrate that it is possible to institute a model of care into a community, a low-cost, low-technology uh, uh, type of model of care, which is easily implemented, and see if we can, can change uh, the burden of disease, actually impact the health of the community. And so the model of care, does that enlist uh, chiropractic uh, individuals, uh, the, other, the others that do manipulative care? I mean, since we're going to talk about uh, the, with the chronic disorder, there's nothing magical, but what might that involve, that, uh, that model? Uh, the model is a multidisciplinary model. So it'll, it'll have chiropractors, physiotherapists, surgeons, rheumatologists, neurologists, psychologists, uh, you know, virtually everybody who can be involved. But it is based on low tech. So you need, uh, most of these communities have, virtually not, nothing, and many don't even have x-ray machines. So you need to have a approach which does not require large surgical facilities, high, high levels of very expensive medications, right. extensive diagnostic procedures. So at most of the model will involve, the primary care model will involve people like chiropractors, osteopathic physicians, or physiotherapists who become the primary spine care clinician, institute a educational program in the community, yes. deal with the symptomatic improvement of people who, uh, who currently have their spinal pain, and help them get over the problem, teach them how to re reduce the frequency, and then educating the government, doing this in cooperation with the government, because you know, no organization can save the world's problems. But if you can create a model whereby the government can then take over the care and, and institute it within their current health care facilities, then that's the sustainable component of it. Then it may actually have an impact, and that's the hope. And when we talk about education, sometimes there's a preventive model uh, or aspect to that. But, you know, everybody can imagine, conjure up that image of the, the you know, women bearing up to, I don't know if it's 20, 30 pounds of wood for, for, for fuel and for cooking and all that kind of a thing. So what, they're, they're not in the, any luxury to prevent um, that kind of injury from occurring with that kind of occupational necessity. Right, that's, and that's, that's a serious issue. But we also know that if you, if you train muscles, if you, if you get into a specific exercise program, you can build up strength so that you can compensate for or at least have the endurance to be able to, to carry on these heavy physical activities. What, what is very common in, in these communities is that they're forced to do these activities but never get involved in any form of training on how to do it, how to build up the strength of the muscles that are necessary to do it, how to maintain mobility. And then there's other issues, what to do when there is a problem, when, when fi finally the body gives out from this type of activities. What can you do to get relief, to reduce the length of the disability, to allow you to move on and perhaps even re recognize that maybe at some point in your life you're not going to be able to do so and the community is going to have to take it up take it up and change the occupation so you can have an age-related population population 
uh, occupational uh, consideration. Right. Well, there is hope then. Dr. Haldeman, you give us hope. Well, I, I think so. I, I, I mean, we have no choice. We have to deal with this problem because it's rapidly expanding. The Global Burden of Disease study showed that between 1990 and 2010, uh, non communicable diseases actually increased by 45 percent. Wow. We're, we're talking about a, a, a international crisis in the health world that we're just not approaching or dealing with. Well, and to bring it home, because uh, it's, uh, uh, part, of, part of what I wanted to cover today is that you've talked about this chronic disorder not having a magical cure, and you talk about, uh, you know, we want us all to be wary of anybody, any... Cl- Condition who tells us they've got a cure for that? Yeah, I, I, we have to be. The problem with the, the poorer countries in the world is that they have no resources. The problem in our community is that we have too much resources. Ah. Uh, I recently did an editorial where we listed over 200 treatment approaches for back pain. Uh, that are currently advertised every day. I found these just just looking through magazines and conventions and so on. I was able to list 200, and we considered this like a supermarket. And so there are lists of brands of different brands of surgery, different brands of chiropractic, different brands of physiotherapy, different brands of over-the-counter medications and standard medications. And most people who are fairly ignorant about the, uh, what, what should they do or how should they do it, so they are total mercy of whatever doctor they come uh, in contact with. And so we tend to treat back pain by serial m- mistreatment in this country. We go from one doctor to the other, uh, try that treatment, try this treatment, try that approach, try this approach, often at huge expense, and many of these treatment approaches have no scientific basis, have virtually no clinical support. As a matter of fact, the, say the, the neck pain task force that I chaired, we found that of these approximately 200 treatment approaches, probably less than 20 had any form of scientific support to which would uh, be, could reasonably be considered uh, as a justification for offering the treatment. And many of them have severe side effects. M- many of the medications we use uh, have real serious side effects, and we probably kill thousands of people every year through our treatments of back pain. Well, that's an amazing symmetry where the hazards of too few resources as well as the hazards of too many resources. Dr. Haldeman, where can we find that editorial to, to sort of improve our own literacy about neck and lower back pain? Well, we did this as a supplement in, an, in a um, journal, which is in the Spine Journal. Okay. Uh, it's called The Spine Journal. It's the official journal of the North American Spine Society. And the entire uh, Journal uh, supplemental report. Uh, this this entire journal, it's 274 yes. pages, uh, edited by myself and a colleague, uh, is available free online uh, at. Uh, I think you can go through spine.org. I, I'm not exactly sure, but I'll if put you that on the it, podcast summary so everybody can go to that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, and you were saying that there are some, there, out of those 200 uh, snake oil offerings, there's a, a, amongst those, that most of which are snake oil, there's the, the 20 to go to. So there, as you said uh, in preparing this uh, interview with me, that there's, there's relief you can get from various, uh, those 20 measures, uh, but it's never a cure, correct? Right. And if you have back pain now, the like, or neck pain, the likelihood that you'll still have some level of back and neck pain in ten year, five years or ten years is about 50%. Some people get over it, but by far the majority of people have to consider back pain and neck pain as a chronic, recurrent, chronic or recurrent disorder that will come and go at various periods in your life with various levels of impact. Sometimes it will just be a nuisance. Sometimes it will put you in bed. Sometimes it'll just be a strain, uh, and you have to recognize that you, we probably do not have and are unlikely in the foreseeable future to have a cure for, uh, for chronic back or neck pain. So you've been able to leverage a great deal of funds. Uh, you're talking about the, um, 
the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and some other, well, World Health Organization to some extent. So uh, I'm sure there's uh, there's direct, we can direct people to your website for where to support and uh, increase, increase, improve their literacy. It's the www.worldspinecare.org. Um, uh, are there other uh, resources that besides the um, the Spinal Journal where they can improve their literacy to to look to see? I think if see? they search. North American Spine Society, they'll find some interesting literature there, and uh, because they put out some of the major journals. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, Bone and Joint Decade Task Force on Neck Pain. Yes. Probably the most learned document on that field, in that field, and that is also easily available online. Okay. Well, these are really, really important resources, and I know people who are wanting to, to be activists because they care, they feel helpless, they want to do something for uh, a, a larger good that the worldspinecare.org can put them in touch with how to do that. Well, Dr. Scott Haldeman, I really deeply appreciate all of your commitment uh, toward sustaining this huge task and your time that you're availing us today. I thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you so very much. All right. I yeah. enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, we are uh, thanking, as I said, Dr. Scott Haldeman. He's affiliated with UCI and so many other universities and uh, making a, uh, a, this huge effort with the WorldSpineCare.org of which he is a part. So uh, I want to uh, close the show to um, let you know next week we're going to have on uh, the Uni High Assistant Principal, Mike Giorgino, with some hand-picked students, and also... Um, some other topical information. Uh, next up, as always, we're going to have Senor George Rosales with George Had a Hat. I thank you, everybody. But before closing, one announcement only. We are going to, um, in uh, the Santa Ana District Court today, will be the second sentencing hearing with a pharmacology faculty member, Ryan, near Reinscheid, who was implicated in fires, uh, arson fires set around Irvine and in Orange County and uh, contemplated doing some serious violence. That's not a charge against him, but that it was a hazard looming, serious violence uh, at the University High School. And the sentencing will be this afternoon at 1.30 at the District Court in Santa Ana. All right. With that, on that note, not necessarily. We're going to keep our minds and ears on what's going out in the world. It's getting seriously uh, dangerous for everybody in Cairo and around Egypt. And I want to suggest that we all improve our literacy on the complicated events that are unfolding because we are all going to be suffering the consequences of what goes out of control. So uh, thanks for listening and joining me today on the show. Talk to you next week. Next up is George Rosales.